All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? How do you get it? We'll deconstruct everything from motivation and mental health to anti-racism and addiction. Ultimately, the goal is to give you the tools and strategies that you need to live your most powerful life, being a force for good in the world and impacting the people around you in a positive way. Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Kula. I help people change and build incredible teams. Welcome to the show. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship itself. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. Welcome to today's episode. Before we get going too far, I want to use this time slot to tell you a little bit about an organization that I've been working with uh, here in Calgary, a local organization that feeds hungry school kids. They're called Brown Bagging for Calgary's Kids, and you can check them out at www.bb4ck.org. They feed more than 4,000 hungry school kids every day in Calgary, run largely by volunteers and in an incredibly efficient manner. So as we head into this holiday season and you're looking for somewhere to direct some of your donations, I can't recommend them enough. They do an incredible amount of good work in our community, not just feeding hungry kids, but also mobilizing partner organizations and volunteers and really leveraging uh, their volunteers and the money that gets raised into you know quite a bit of impact in the world. That website again is www.bb4ck.org. Okay, today's guest is one of those people that I could sit and talk to for hours, and so there's a really good chance we're going to have him back on the podcast. He is a designer by trade, but he's also been an engineer, and he's also spent a decade working in the homelessness sector and with vulnerable people and youth at risk. He is incredibly insightful about all things design, and we talk a lot about how to design your life and that design thinking isn't enough. We need to move past just thinking and how do we create some experiments and how do we take some action in our lives. We have a pretty wide-ranging conversation about lots of different things, but we, we do focus a fair bit on design thinking, and so I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did with Joshua Clark. Josh, thanks so much for joining me. Awesome. Thanks for having me. So let's maybe just start with what you're up to, what you're most excited about these days. I know you've got some projects happening in a local school doing, uh, it's called Make Good. Uh, you're also a designer and you do a bunch of other stuff. And so who are you? What do you do? And what are you most excited about? Sure. Um, so yeah, I would consider myself a, a designer and maker and a experimental uh, education educator, experiential educator, maybe. Um, so yeah, most of the, my time I spend uh, doing design work, working with breweries and small businesses, getting their brand developed. And then I started a, a side experiment called Make Good. And that was really an attempt to, to explore the intersection between uh, design, education, creative placemaking, and social activism. And so, yeah, it looks like, uh, right now it looks like education programs in middle school. And we've got one starting up in a couple of weeks, which I'm really excited about. Um, all, it's all around in, uh, 
combining making and mental health um, with these students. So I'm really stoked on that. Okay. And this is your second round of this, this program. And why are you excited about it? And let's talk about that intersection a little bit between mental health and making. What's the connection there? And what do you think the, the power of that, of this program is going to be for the students? And- yeah. I mean, I think it, it comes, I've drawn the, the motivation and the, the insight for this program from my own personal experience, you know, making for me has been um, therapeutic in, in so many different ways. It's, it's connected me to my own personal power. Uh, the fact that I can take an idea and I can put uh, hard work into it and I can, I can work out that idea into something I can hold my hands. I can share with other people. That's um, probably the most empowering experience that I've encountered. And so I want to share that with, everyone around me. And, and I, I think with students in particular, giving them this authentic experience of getting in touch with their creativity, giving them permission to explore that, but also seeing that it's not so much what they make, but it's the process that uh, allows them to engage with um, a different side of themselves. Not this, it doesn't have to be this cerebral uh, intellectual, you know, knowledge consuming part, um, but this uh, part of them that can use their inherent uh, skills of noticing and attention and uh, creative self-expression uh, to to have a meaningful experience and share that with others. Yeah, and that's, that strikes me as an experience that we don't get a lot of anymore. We live in a very consumer driven, like we're consuming other people's creativity or messages or those types of things. Even, you know, I've got a kid in grade three, right? And he spends a lot of his day consuming, not creating, right? And so um, how do you how do you go about doing that? How do you shift? Because is, is there a mindset shift that needs to happen with, with kids? Because it seems like at some point we go from being in, inherently creative to yeah. more passive consumers of, of, of ideas. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm, and I'm still learning this as I go and, and it's an ongoing experiment, but I think for me, it, it starts with creating that safe space um, where creativity can happen and trying to kind of redistribute that power um, that you typically find in traditional schools in education and give that power back to the students themselves. And, and so when I approach these projects, I come at it as a co-creator with the students. And when I walk into a classroom and I've got the teacher next to me and the principal and they're saying, hey, here's Josh from Make Good, I inherit this role power. And so I'm, I'm aware of that and cognizant of it. And I try my best to uh, redistribute that power back to the students and, and say, you know, this, this is something we're going to do together. Um, and so I, I try to do that through my conversations with them, you know, being able to get one-on-one with each student and ask them questions and, and value the questions that they ask and um, not telling them what to do, but allowing that kind of uh, free experience to happen where you're making something, you can make mistakes and you can try and test out an idea um, and you can do that without someone guiding it uh, per se. Mm-hmm. That seems like it's a departure from traditional kind of ways that we educate or the ways that we engage in the world. What, what are some of the biggest barriers that, that you think when you think more of a system level, when you step back from your project and, and what you do kind of one-on-one, what are some of those barriers that the system 
maybe the educational system, but I think larger, you know, organizations and institutions that have trouble innovating or creating or taking risks and fostering creativity. What are some of the biggest blocks that, that you see? Oh boy. I mean, we could spend forever dismantling systems and, and I'm certainly not a systems expert. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I would boil it down to, you know, the personal barriers that we have, whether that be ego um, that fear of failure and fear of being uh, left out from the pack, right? And so uh, that often inhibits innovation and new ideas from being shared and tested out is, you know, what will people think if I do this, right? What if I've, I notice that there's a, a need or a problem and I'm going to pitch something that's totally different? What will people think of me? And most people just stop right there. They'll, they'll, tow the the party line they'll do whatever's conventional and what's been done before to the status quo uh just to be remain part of the pack right we don't want to be left out and i think that's something that's just rooted very deep in in our psyche and that gets manifested on the larger system level when you've got a bunch of human beings in a system thinking that way yeah it's interesting one like i i basically think we should just be asking the question what are you really afraid of when, whenever we run into resistance or whenever we run into people who aren't changing or aren't, aren't innovating or aren't embracing what might be a better path. It's like, what, what actually are you afraid of? Because I think that fear tends to take the steering wheel more often than not in our, in our day to day. Yeah. Fear. And, and we have, especially nowadays, we have this uh, expectation for things to happen really quickly where uh, the process of innovation, the process of making anything new is it takes time, right? It takes effort um, it takes uh, taking massive risks sometimes, but it's that, you know, I have an idea and I want to do something and it's got to happen right away, right? Change has got to happen instantly. And this is not reality. And so I think when people dive into, oh, let's try something new and within the first week it doesn't happen or the first day it doesn't happen, they're like, oh, they'll just abandon it because obviously that was the wrong path to take. But the things that that are worth changing take time and take a lot of effort and, and persisting through all that resistance that will inevitably come when you try to make something new. Yeah. that you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, right? And we, we, we do have that kind of very accelerated view of what's possible and, and that expectation that things are going to change yeah. quickly. And I think that that might also contribute to some of the change fatigue in some of these systems, because there's been change like every every year there's a new change coming into these big systems and it often fizzles out by the time it gets to the, you know, direct service um, level. So that's, that's interesting. Let's talk about, or, you know, you and a risk that you've taken lately. Can you, if you think of something that, you know, like if we do talk about, like let's talk about fear and risk and, yeah. and if you don't mind um, sharing with us something, a risk that you've taken recently or one that stands out for you and how you worked through, some of that fear because I think that that's really valuable. Yeah. I mean, I, the biggest risk was, you know, just over a year ago, I decided to start my own business and, and to become self-employed and explore that route. Um, that was a huge challenge, uh, a huge risk. And I've taken others in the past. Like I, I used to be an engineer and I, I quit that and started working in the nonprofit world. And, um, but, you know, a year year ago, I was kind of in this transition place in my life. I was, you know, leaving one career and, and not sure what the next step was going to be. And I think the easy path would have been to go back uh, doing what I was doing. And, and that's what I knew, what I knew best. I knew people there. I knew there was opportunities given to me. 
Um, but there was also this opportunity to do something new. And I think I'd like to think it was just, you know, my own, uh, courage that, that did it. But the fact, you know, I have a super supportive partner and, and family that encouraged me to, to try this out. Right. And so starting a business and, and, and actually trying to make money through my creativity is a huge risk. And one that I'm, you know, every day I'm like, did I make the right decision? But you know, when I, when I'm actually able to see, um, the fruit of my labor, right. When I, when I get to work with really cool people or see my work out there in the world, it's, it reinforces that. Yeah, this is a worthwhile risk to take. And I've learned so much. I'm still, still learning a ton, but, um, it was definitely a challenge. Let's talk about some of those lessons. What are some of those key things that you've learned so far, you know, since you've started your own business, but going back when you think about the the shifts in your, in your career trajectory or life in general, what are some of those, you know, lessons that you've learned? You know, it sounds like one of them is the, the lesson of slowing down a little bit and making sure that our expectations for how quickly things are going to happen at system levels. But also I think personally, we kind of set that, you know, I want to lose these 20 pounds and I want to lose them by next week. Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the lessons, um, that I've learned is you, you'll never know until you try. Like you, you, you can't, you could theorize and you could sit at your desk and you can have this wonderful business plan or all these great ideas, but ideas are easy. Having the idea is the easiest part. Um, doing the work like Stephen Pressfield, uh, talks about in his book, um, the war of art and, it's you got to show up and you got to do the work. And sometimes that work sucks. And sometimes, you know, it's not what you thought. But something that I've learned through working with uh, these students and in my own creative practices is that it's in the working it out. That's, that's what you're actually after. You know, I have encountered a lot of moments that might look successful, or I've accomplished something, or I can see a piece of work out there in the world. But it's not as satisfying as when you reflect on what you went through and what you grew through, um, making that happen. And so for me, I've, I now value the process far more than the thing that I make. And that's been a, a big lesson. And I think it's people rarely even get to that place because maybe the thing that they started out making does not look what the, like what they thought it was going to be. And so they give up or they think they failed. Um, or they just never get that far. They never show up to do the work. Because um, we, you know, we live in a culture that idolizes the idea. And we proliferate ideas left, right, and center. You can go into a bookstore and there's a million great ideas out there. But in, until you show up, get your hands dirty and do the work, you actually don't know what it is you're actually making. So it's it's showing up and doing the work is one of the lessons. Yeah, no, that's a great one. And uh, we're actually sitting at a desk that I built for my wife in in the basement. Well, thank you, but it was you know a lot of learning involved. In fact, I I built it about two inches too high, and just out of dumb luck, there was enough left on the legs that I could cut two inches off and bring the whole desk down. Yeah, or just build a taller chair. Build a taller chair. <laughs> exactly. There was some some way to fix this. Yeah. No, it looks great. Yeah, thank you. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, about transitions about how to move from one thing to the next and how to, how to wrestle with, with those. Cause I know I've, I've gone through some transitions in my, in my own practice, in my own life. Um, you know, aside from, you know, the, the obvious, you get married, you know, you, you do those the big life events, but smaller transitions in between from one idea to the next or letting something go to pursue something else. And so, you know, 
how do you how do you work through transitions or how what do you think about transitions and, and do you have any yeah. any insight um yeah i feel like i should be an expert at transitions because i feel like that's uh if i look at the the long scope of my life i that's how i break it down and is these thresholds that i crossed uh, throughout life um and so yeah i don't know if i have um I'm still off, you know, often reflecting on, on those transitions and, and how I could have done them better. Or, um, but for me, I think it's always having a, a beginner's mindset. You know, I didn't have the language you know, when I was younger that that's exactly what it was, but always being open uh, to learning, right? always being a perpetual student. I think something that I definitely picked up through my university days uh, in engineering was just always asking why, always asking you know, what is at the heart of this thing? Um, or, you know, what do I need to know to really get a, f- a foundational understanding of whatever it is I'm uh, embarking on? So transitioning from engineering into nonprofit, I didn't have an education in social work or anything like that. And so I had to be really open and receptive to learning on the go. And so having that mindset, though, is is crucial. And that's served me well in every transition that I've ever gone through is you know, I embrace being in a, in a new scenario, right? And I look to the people around me as experts and ask questions. And uh, I'm not quick to assert my own uh, perspective or understanding on something that uh, is better left to people who've done it before me, right? So always being a student and um, always being willing to learn and ask questions is is definitely one of the biggest lessons I've taken from going through transitions, no, that's a great piece of advice and uh, something that I would probably do well to remember. I suffer a little bit from the Dunning-Kruger, like, yeah. oh, I got this. Um, yeah, and it's, I think um, the, the other thing is we have limits, too. That's the other thing that, that my transitions have taught me is that, you know, I've got tons of ideas and projects that are just, you know, I'll wake up in the middle of the night, go, okay, got to do that. And so I'll wake up in the morning and I'll have on my agenda of to-dos like 15, 20 different things that I want to <laughs> try get done in, in a day or ideas I want to test out. Um, but I learned the hard way that we have limits. You know, I went through a, a really severe burnout a few years ago and, and I walked away pretty broken and had to reassess every element of my life. And, and one of the big ones was this per- pervasive paradigm that I have limitless energy, limitless creativity, limitless compassion and empathy. And once I encountered that limitation, it helped me to to step back and, and simplify. And once I start to simplify, that's when real creativity seems to happen and, and things start to move forward is I can actually focus that energy in on, the, on one thing and, and actually get headway. And actually seeing progress is like you generate this feedback loop and it's like, oh, you're actually making progress and you keep going, right? Where I would typically have you know all these things and I would never make any progress and make it like an inch here or there and I step back going what is my what am I doing with my life I'm totally lost but once I was forced to step back and simplify and go okay what what is it I really want to do what's really going to make me come alive or you know is it a hell yes or a hell no sort of scenario and once I did that I started to see things moving forward I think you and I are cut from the same cloth. I've got way too many ideas that I try and chase. Lots of rabbits that you're hunt, trying to hunt. And uh, I mean, life is interesting. There's so many things to be curious about. But um, I think in in our culture, we have this 
idea that we're invincible, that we well, are, and that we can have it all. Yeah, right. There's exactly. this this myth that you can you can have anything and everything that you want simultaneously. And then you see examples of people that have attained that, and they're no happier than you are. And so I think that's the, that's the other part part of going through transitions and, and actually, uh, you know, doing things and taking action on your ideas is once you actually start doing it, you realize what you really want, right? If you if you're always sitting and just imagining and fantasizing of, of what life's going to be like when you achieve this or do this, you actually have no idea what it's actually like. So the best thing to do is just get out there and try and make it happen, and then you get this real feedback of, well, it's not what I thought it was going to be. You know, being a business owner and being self-employed, working from home, yeah, it's got some drawbacks. I would love to work at an office sometimes, you know, but back back in the day when it was that's all I did, nine to five, I was like, oh man, if I could just work at home and if I could just be creative every day, life would be fantastic. And then you do it, and you're like, oh, okay, there's there's more to this. Let's let's explore a little bit about design thinking. You know, I'm loosely familiar with it. We've done some work together with some groups around how to impart or embed a design thinking kind of mindset into the structures of innovation and creativity and even just on a team, right? How do we take these ideas and move them from idea into action? How do we know if it's a good idea? How do we know um, if the feedback we're getting is useful feedback? Like some of the some of the more nitty gritty parts of design thinking, can you walk us through like the classic kind of design thinking process or maybe what you walk through with students and then we can look at applying that how it might apply to different areas yeah i mean i think uh, in a nutshell design thinking is just simply a way that we solve problems and so that's you know essentially design thinking forces you to uh re-examine where you start right so starting by by noticing and by asking the right questions talking to the right people um, practicing your empathy so if you're solving a problem um, for whatever scenario it might be, you know, it could be applied to parenting, it could be applied to teaching, Not, it doesn't just belong in the design tech world. Um, it's a mindset and a process that anyone can apply. But it's starting with this uh, idea that, well, you're not an expert, right, in the problem. And if you're designing a solution for someone, you got to start with them, right? So it's practicing empathy to listen, to really understand the need and the challenge that they have and inviting them into that process as well. So once you've, you feel like you have a, a solid understanding um, or even just a basic understanding of, of what someone's needs and challenges are, then you try to define what the actual problem is. And you, that, you might actually have a little bit of a loop there going back to the people that you're designing for and say, is this the actual problem? Did I define this right? And sometimes you got to do that a bunch of times. And then when you have a, a defined problem or challenge, um, and then it's you're going into that sort of ideation phase where you are allowing yourself to be as creative as possible, thinking outside the box, and not just you know using conventional methods of of problem solving or innovation, but you're really looking for something that's unique and that's actually going to meet the need. So you've come up with an idea, and the next step is to prototype it. Sometimes I think like the status quo uh, process would be you got the idea, put in production, and then sell it on mass and not get any feedback. <laughs> and so the idea is get that idea out as quickly as possible. Lots of ideas. Um, and the idea is you don't want to have to have your first idea succeed, right? You want it, you want feedback. 
So prototype it, do something rough and quick and give it to the people that you are designing for. Let, you know, get the feedback. What don't you like? What should we tweak? What should we change? Put that back into the cycle and iterate again. And you just do that process until you know, you've got something that, that works. And even if it does work, then you still have this mindset that you can always improve it. And I think for organizations to apply that sort of mindset is, is so key. You know, a lot of the times what my, what I witnessed in the nonprofit world is we'd have this great idea and we would just do it and then it would just live on and, and we'd never change it. And we wouldn't question it to see if it was actually still functional yeah. and working. And, or maybe we start, we also don't do the empathy taking like perspective taking first step very well right we'll we'll have an idea of what the problem is from our perspective and we'll jump right to the ideation you know i've been in lots of sessions where it's lots of sticky notes on the on the board and we're trying to design solutions for problems for a staff team or problems for a client and we they're not in the room right it's the people who are doing the designing are removed from the the actual struggle yeah the problem because i think it's we we've got this expert syndrome I mean, any, anyone in any industry will have that and we've got egos. And also I think when you actually invite real conversation, it's messy and you don't know where it's going to go. And so I think that's, for me, that's the beauty of design thinking. And I think, but that's what uh, I think keeps people in their conventional uh, mindset is like, it's, this is too, too difficult. You have no idea. We want to have some control over where this is going. But if we actually talk to people, maybe they'll suggest something that's totally not what uh, we thought, right? It's outside of our wheelhouse or, yeah. Yeah, I think there's also some hesitation sometimes from leaders or helpers that if I know all the needs and if I know the true need, that I'm not going to be able to meet it, right? Like I'm not going to have the resources or the time or the money or the expertise to meet it. And so it's easier to not ask those questions because then you don't need to deal with the answers of like, well, actually, yes, this is the problem. Yeah. Right. And it might, what we find might make us re, uh, you know, want to question the whole thing, the whole system. You know, we might find out that we're actually totally useless in our current capacity that we actually need to overhaul the whole nine yards. And I think that's the existential crisis of a nonprofit, for example, would be what if what we're doing is not needed in this, this way. We actually have to reinvent the whole thing. And if you're in an industry that's in that survival mode and that sort of scarcity mentality, then you want to limit then uh, those sort of outlier uh, experiences and you, and you don't, you want to control the whole thing and you want to keep the machine run, running. Well, there's a lot of incentive to like, there's a lot of downside risk yeah. to opening up the conversation. There's a lot of incentive to maintain the status quo. Yeah. Right. I certainly ran into that in addictions treatment. It's like, no, let's like, this is what we do. And yeah. It's like, really? Like, why aren't we working with kindergarten teachers and new parents? Like, that seems like the logical place for us to interrupt this cycle of addiction is like 10 years before they're on the street. Yeah. Right. Maybe. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, asking like, what are we actually here to do? Right. In, in any industry, you know, teaching, for example, like, what are we actually doing here? Um, and I think what I love about design in all of its forms is that it's really, you're trying to pay attention to the world around you and you're not just creating something uh, for the sake of it. You're not just making something just to perpetuate its existence, but you're paying attention to the real needs. You're, you're in the present moment and you're listening. And, and out of that, you're designing something, making something that is truly useful and impactful. And so you have, you have to be willing to let go of 
what you thought you were doing, I think. Willingness to set aside the expert hat for long enough to actually listen and be curious. And Yeah. But there's also, I mean, I think there's a, there is a, maybe it's the way that design thinking has been portrayed of late. It's, it's kind of the, it's having a moment like many different things. And, you know, for me, it's not, I, I'd far rather call it design doing, right? Cause that's, it's, it's in the doing that actually is where the change happens. Um, we don't need a bunch of people who just, um, we probably do enough thinking, right? We have enough ideas. We have enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, you know, again, having new ideas and, and thinking is one thing, but it, unless you're able to, to take action on that, then who cares, right? We don't need a bunch of people in a room who are like, oh, I took a course on design thinking and, you know, let's go through this process. And no, it's, you know, it's actually in the working out of an idea and a problem and, and testing things out and making real things that change happens. Um, and so I'd, I'd far rather see people adopt this, uh, action orientation towards design and incorporating that way of thinking and doing into their, their organization. Cause that's where real change will, will come. But there's a lot of systematic structures in place that impede that, I think. So we're going to hit the pause button here for a second on this conversation with Josh for a quick commercial break. And we do commercials a bit differently here on the Powerful Podcast. Uh, we use it as a chance to give a shout out to organizations that we've been doing work with, whether that's in a consulting or a coaching or a workshop facilitation perspective, um, usually nonprofit organizations that are making a difference, making a dent in the issues that they're seeking to tackle. And I know it's the Christmas season. If you're listening to this and when it first comes out, then you're, you're gearing up for the holiday season. And what better way to contribute meaningfully to your community than to find organizations that are moving the needle, that have moved past the thinking about these problems stage to the doing something about these problems. And if you remember back to episode five with Marilyn and Caitlin from The Doorway, you'll know the incredible work that they're doing with homeless youth and street-engaged youth in the city of Calgary and helping them get off of the street, out of street culture, back into the mainstream. And so I would love for you to check out The Doorway, and you can learn more about them at www.thedoorway.ca. Now back to our conversation with Josh. Yeah, can you can you talk, give us an example, like a more like a really practical example of a design thinking process that you've been involved with and what ended up happening kind of at the other end of it? Like something, you know, maybe it was a student project or maybe it was something with Make Good in the Neighborhood, which I know is another project of yours or at a, the organizational level uh, that you've been a part of where you've seen a design process or design thinking and doing and an outcome or an impact. Yeah, I mean, I can't draw on too many uh, experiences from the professional world, like the, the nonprofit or, or even in, in engineering, you know, although, you know, I didn't know design thinking as it's been defined that way. When I was an engineer, that's just how you do things. Maybe, you know, subtract the empathy component often. Um, but for example, uh, the first make good project, you know, I partnered with uh, the town of Cochrane and we, they had this initiative to improve accessibility around town and so they approached me and said, could you include youth in, in this somehow? And so I led the youth through a very condensed version of a design thinking process. And so we brought in uh, someone with lived experience uh, who was experiencing a disability. They interviewed that individual. And then we put the youth in 
wheelchairs and mobility aids. And we had this fully immersive experience where we now try to navigate downtown um, with someone experiencing a disability and, you know, priming their, their empathy, helping them to, to start to notice things and go, okay, what's the real need here? And uh, then the, you know, they take that information and they started to prototype potential solutions, right? So they, you know, they used different arts and crafts sort of material. We, they came up with some incredible ideas. Um, and then, so there's one, one girl, she, um, she was like, well, what if someone is, is blind and they're trying to, you know, they like nature and they want to go on the pathways. Right. So she designed this app, right. Just prototyped it on cardboard, but this app that would talk to you as you walked. Right. So it would, it would guide you. And it, you could be used for anyone with any sort of mobility impairment. But as you approach, say, a statue or some monument or some scenic viewpoint, it would say, this is what you're looking at, right? And it would uh, tell you different facts and all that kind of stuff. Um, she, what else did she include? If you're approaching a, a hill or, or a slope, it would indicate and let you know. It could tell you where the closest accessible washroom was and and then she's like, oh man, I could apply that to someone who was, uh, you know, bound in their home. And so you could put on these VR goggles and connect it to the app and you could walk around Cochrane with these goggles on and experience, you know, what other people are experiencing. And I was like, that's, that's a genius idea. We could actually do that. And so in the, in the end, you know, because it was, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of funding and, and it was short, we ended up building these portable uh, ramps to install in front of businesses. And so they got, you know, their hands dirty with, with making those ramps and painting them and, um, putting them out there. And so it serves as this very visible, um, accomplishment. You know, they, they used their creativity. They understood a challenge and a problem. They, they went through that process and here's a, a solution. Right. And we even talked about how that wasn't an ideal solution right? It's, it only solves uh, a percentage of the challenges out there. And how do we deal with that? And so that's kind of in a, in a nutshell, you know, one, one example, um, the, the, the first project, uh, with the local junior high was called project mental wellness. And so the task for the students was how do they improve mental wellness in their school and community? And so again, we went through the same sort of process. And in the end we had one group, they, uh, did a podcast and they interviewed a mental health clinician and their teachers and they talked about what is mental wellness and tips and, and on how to improve that and they put that out in the world. Uh, one group they designed a a fun experience for the seniors facility next to the school and we invited seniors to the school and we did bingo and they did this whole event uh, to kind of promote um, mental well-being. We went over to the seniors facility and toured that space and they came back going, man, it's kind of depressing. And there's a whole, not a whole lot of opportunities for social interaction. So what if we design something to get them out and have fun? And so that's what they did. And we had another, the, the final group did, they redesigned a space in the school, the reboot room. And so they in design, designed this whole user experience on, on how a student could go in there. They're feeling bad in some way they could uh, go in there calm down they built this mindfulness station they had food stations and creativity stations and so um we went through that whole process and, and within that they had a lot of bad ideas <laughs> they tested a lot of things they made a lot of mistakes 
Um, but in the end, most of them came out thinking, you know what? No, there's no bad idea here. We just got to put it out there, test it, see if it works. And in the end, they created something that they were proud of. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think that that kind of doing that kind of active engagement is, is probably that's the experiential side of kind of learning and education coming out in me. And I mean, my background's in addictions treatment and we took a very experiential approach to addictions treatment as well. Um, how do you, how could a leader, how could someone who's responsible for say a team of teachers or a team of addictions, youth workers, or, you know, somebody take design thinking and really operationalize it? Like what are the practical steps involved or structures that they need to think about? Because I think that, you know, what we're talking about is kind of innovation, right? Is the ability to take creative risks to solve problems. And so problem identification is probably the first step, right? From the perspective of the person that we're trying to solve the problem for, what is it? But what are some of, there's, there's cultural things that support risk-taking and innovation and there are structural things. And so what's your perspective on, on either of those, like from a cultural perspective, things that we should be paying attention to or doing. And then from a more structural perspective, um, how can we embed some of these things into our, our practice? Yeah. Uh, That's a great question. I think, I think culture has to come first. I think you can create a great structure that could support uh, design thinking process and, and innovation. But if the culture isn't there and it doesn't feel authentic, then I, th I feel like peop it, will, it will be a, a waste of time or you'll have a lot of non-starters. I think for culture, you know, for people to be innovative and actually embrace that process, they have to get over that hurdle of fear, right? So they need to be in an environment where they are affirmed, regardless if their idea is good or bad, or regardless if they succeed or not. They have to be affirmed that they are good, that they're enough, and that they're valued. So they're not valued based on whether they win or lose. And so I think, you know, culture is a, is a messy and complex thing that you know, I'm not an expert in, but I think if a leader can espouse um, that level of, of confidence in their staff of acceptance and kind of, you know, portray themselves, you know, being vulnerable in, in uh, sharing ideas and trying things out, I think it has to start with the leader themselves Um actually creating that space to innovate. And, and I think that maybe goes all the way back to the why of the organization, right? The vision of the organization, like, what are you really there to do? If your vision and why is we're here to do this X, Y, Z, and that's our mission and that's it. Then you, you're, you know, implicitly telling your employees, you're here just to fulfill X, Y, Z. But if you have a vision and, and a why that's compelling that, embeds within it um, possibility and the sense of uh, we're not there yet, but we're going somewhere. Then you're telling your staff and, and your team that, okay, we're inviting, we need you to come to work with ideas and we want to empower you to make that happen. And so I think it, it goes all the way back to the, the bedrock of the organization and their, and their why. And then you can operate, op, you know, you can turn that into a structure to to flesh that out um you know whether that is dedicated space to be creative you know like it, somehow incorporating play into work somehow as a creative person myself i'm less creative the more time i try to just 
be creative and, and, you know, pound out work and just hustle and try to make it happen. I need to step away. I need to incorporate stillness and silence and play and something totally unrelated to what I'm doing for my brain to start to, um, come up with unique connections. Right. So, uh, giving that opportunity and not, and not kind of coding it as a little bit of self care here and there, but actually, you know, whether that's a retreat or whether that is a physical space in your office where it is, you know, you can freely use it however you want. Um, but if you want your staff to be innovative, you've got to give them space to be innovative and not expect them to do that when they leave the office. Right. I think a lot of, a lot of time we're like, Hey, you go home, you read your, your books and you do your meditations and you get your space and then come back and give us everything that you came up with. <laughs> and so I think uh, embedding that into the organization itself would be a, a start. Yeah, I used to have the luxury of, you know, being a, being a manager. And so I could set my own schedule and I would just build into my day. Like I'm walking the dog for an hour and it's work time because that's when I made the most breakthroughs creatively that's when i solved most of the problems that i've been wrestling with is when i actually stepped away from the computer and the email right or stepped away from the office for a little bit to actually have that space and i think that spaciousness is something that we just don't have a lot of in in life anymore i think that might be one of the places to start is carving out like you say some space maybe physical space for sure but also mental and emotional space from the day-to-day kind of grind and the crisis that's popping up one after the other because we get very reactive um, to what's coming in and that's that's the the opposite of creativity right this this like being inundated with all of this sensory input and all of these other people's problems and crises piling on top of us you know from a non-profit perspective or education like that's just yeah life for a lot of people and and you know make good the idea of make good really you know when i when i left the my career in the nonprofit world i started really questioning like could we come at these social challenges not from a place of crisis, but a place of creativity? Like what if we were to not look that, at these as problems, but as opportunities to create something new? And could that fundamentally shift how we do things? And and I had some experience um, in programs that I've managed in the past where I tried to make that happen, give authentic space for my staff to solve problems in a different way. And I think the lessons I learned from that is unless you, you can follow through that, you know, with that authenticity right through from, you know, giving them the space to do it, to actually op, you know, actually putting into practice some of the things that they've come up with. If you can't follow through on that last bit, you're going to lose any momentum you've ever created. And I think I learned that the hard way. I think there was a few uh, circumstances where I gave the opportunity for the staff to reinvent something. It wasn't working, so okay, you guys, you guys do this. Uh, you give me your ideas. Let's work it out. Let's test it out. If it doesn't work immediately, that's fine. But, but then you come to year end, and I need you to give me the outcomes for the program. And these outcomes are outlined by the funder, and the funder doesn't care about <laughs> your innovations. It wants to know very concrete facts and figures that are limited in in their scope and in, in terms of trying to articulate what you're actually doing here and i could see it on the faces of my staff it was like really you know this is not telling the full story of what we're trying to do here we're more than just these these uh, very basic outcomes and so it kind of felt like their all their work and innovation was 
for nothing and it wasn't being recognized and, and so, or wasn't being valued. And as much as I wanted, I, you know, I try to value it. It also wasn't valued by the organization either. And or it was done in a very shallow way. And I think that was, that was hard to, to witness, right? You get these people all excited to come to work again. And, you know, previously they were burnt out and like, this place sucks. <laughs> and then you get them excited, you empower them, you give them real responsibility and opportunity to give some of their unique creativity to it. And then it didn't really go anywhere. And I think that gave me pause to go, okay, you need to think this through top to bottom. Yeah. And you need, we need to make sure that the the scope is well-defined, I think. of I think that's one of the, the issues around innovation is that we... And maybe it goes right back to that first step around figuring out what the real problem is, because, you know, I've been there as well, where the outcomes that we're after are how long are kids going to stay in treatment? Do they stay 90 days or 70 days as if there's a difference, right? Or as if it matters, it's like, what kind of change are we actually after? And let's measure that. Mm -hmm. Like, what's the real problem here? And let's address that as opposed to this very narrow slice that most programs find themselves, even education, right? you get into a room full of teachers and there'll be a mixed perspective in the room on what the role of a teacher is and what their actual job is. And are we after academic outcomes, which is really what gets reported and what gets reinforced by the system? Are we after social and emotional growth and wellness and connect connection to peers and those other kind of softer, you know, air quote, the softer. Um, So I think it goes back to that really clear problem definition and a, a really pretty clear picture of what an outcome is that we're after, right? What is the resolution of this problem actually look like and how might we measure it, right? Because if we get a fundamental misalignment between what we think is important and what the funder does or the the rest of the group or the organization, I think that sets up that tension. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and I think, and and out of all of that, often the person that we're trying to help gets completely left out of that equation, right? They're, we're, we have this battle between the funder and the staff and, the, and then there's these people that the organization exists to serve and they are left out from the conversation. And I think, you know, that was something that has always gnawed at me through my whole career it was like, we're not listening. Um, who am I to, to know what your real needs are? Every organization that, that I go into on the wall, it says client centered. Right or student-centered or family-centered or some centering of the person being served. And when you look into practice and when you look into those conversations and you actually tease it out, you realize there has there is no voice, right? There is no input. Um, they haven't been centered. And we can do a whole lot of harm when we don't have their voice central um, in the whole process. You know, my most of my career was working with adults in homelessness. And, you know, when I started, it was kind of the the beginning of Calgary's 10 year plan to end homelessness. And there was this big push to solve homelessness by putting people in, in homes and <laughs> in, in houses, right? Give them four walls and a door and a key. And that should solve the problem. And, you know, being a part of that and, and witnessing how you put someone who's lived on the street for 20 years, you put them in a place where they're completely isolated. They're alone. And, you know, they're not going to thrive. And I, I woke up to the fact that, oh, homelessness is way more complex than, yeah. And so then you start to talk to people. What is it you really need? You know, when I had the opportunity to start a, a permanent supportive housing program and right from the outset, my goal was to try to rethink this, 
You know, like it's not about just giving these people a place to live, but for me, it comes down to uh, purpose, place, and belonging. And I just said, these are our three tenants and we'll be flexible on different rules and what we do. But if we can try to articulate for each individual, what those are or help them articulate it, I think we have a better chance of them being successful on their own terms. And we, we saw that we saw 10 people move in that had not been able to maintain housing for longer than three months. And by the time I left, it was two years and we had almost no turnover. And the idea being, and it wasn't, you know, I'm not applauding myself, but what I'm saying is when you create that space and you have those intentions that, you know, one, one story is we had one individual come in from one of the big shelters in Calgary, been on, on the streets for off and on 20 years and had, you know, acute mental health, acute, um, physical health challenges, uh, substance abuse challenges, came into the home and was, he didn't speak at all, didn't talk to anyone, went into his room, totally reclusive, shut the door for two months. And I'd only ever see him when he went to the liquor store and back. Uh, you know, over time, we kind of broke him down a little bit and, and he came up to me and said, can I plant some potatoes? And I was like, some potatoes? <laughs> okay. We had like a, a little gravel pit next to the house and and so I kind of probed that, you know, idea a little bit. And I said, do you want to build a garden? And he was like, okay, whatever. And I said, well, I can't build it alone. Can you kind of be the project manager for this? And so he's like, I'm, like I need a list of the materials, what seeds you want, how much soil to buy. And together we built three giant uh, garden beds near the house. And it was right around springtime. And he changed over the six months alone, he uh, completely changed. He woke up every morning, six, six o'clock, he tended to that garden. Uh, he made these little boxes uh, out of cardboard that he would then harvest the garden, you know, throughout the month and knock on the door of his neighbors and give them a box of vegetables. He started to walk differently. He, he was like a different person. He went from drinking maybe 24 beers a day to maybe six beers a day. Um, and then the, the most curious thing happened. He came to my office and he's like, come, come see my, my room. And I walk into his room and he's decorated it with all of these abstract sculptures that he, he kind of pieced together from things he collected on his ball picking route. He was painting, he was writing poetry. And I was like, who is this person? And, you know, that's one story, but you know, when given the opportunity, you know, his real need wasn't housing. His need was to feel belonging, uh, to feel like he had a purpose and to feel like he was connected to a place and given those three things. And he had his bad days, right? Like we all do, but to focus on just housing and just, you know, getting to a therapist. And, you know, once he started taking care of the garden, it was pretty magical. He started taking care of himself. We didn't have to prompt him to do his laundry. We didn't have to prompt him to go to his appointments. He just did it. And that kind of stuck with me as an example of, okay, we, if we approach this from a truly from a client centered perspective, from a human perspective, um, you know, call it human centered design, if you want, you know, listening to what his real needs are and facilitating that uh, he had all the tools and capacity and resiliency within himself to uh, reinvent his life. And we just kind of had to hold that space. Right. But I have definitely been on the side of, okay, no, you need to just sign this lease. Don't 
mess it up and here's your grocery cards. Good luck. And I would say probably 90% of the people I housed during those days always returned back to the shelter. So I think because it was maybe a place that they felt belonging, yeah, right? Exactly. And there was inherently some sort of purpose driven there. You know, we talk a lot about like needs and values and goals and strengths, these four kind of things that motivate us. And when we see symptoms, and so that was always my view of addiction, right? Addiction is not the problem. Addiction is the symptom of some underlying problems, right? Which is usually disconnection, being dislocated from what's purposeful or meaningful in life. Um, so it's, it's interesting that we still have these systems that take a very narrow view or a very narrow slice of a person, very deficit focused, right? And yet on the wall, we'll have client-centered or human-centered, strengths-focused. Like every brochure has strengths-focused in it. Yeah. And yet when it comes to like asking how, how do we do strengths? Like where, what are your strengths? Right? I've asked staff teams, what are your strengths? And it's crickets, silence. It's like, how do you help clients find their strengths if you don't know what yours are, right? And so this very deficit-focused view, I think, is a, is a big piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I mean, that's pervasive in, in all of our culture, right? It's, it's like the base of, of the self-help movement, right, based on a deficit in us versus some strength that we need, need to tap into. And I think, you know, working with people who are disenfranchised in, in all those different ways, you know, one of the one of the main ways they're disenfranchised is the ability to make changes in their own life, shape their own life. And I think in, in the story I just told, when he started to make things, you know, he actually was reconnected with this inherent ability we all have to shape our world internally and externally just by making a simple object. And that's at the heart of make good is if we can reconnect to that um, process and that ability then imagine imagine a neighborhood of people who are are confident in their uh, capacity to be creative, that are in, tuned in to the needs of, of people around them, that are paying attention, that have that beginner's mindset, and they encounter a, a challenge and feel empowered to tackle that. Then you have people locally tackling local challenges and not waiting for someone else of some greater authority or power to fix that. And I think for me, that's where the, the solution, if there is a solution lies, is in empowering people on the local level um, to reconnect with that. And I think, you know, for me, it's, it's always goes back to my own personal experience. You know, when I was going through uh, my PTSD and, and depression and, and kind of my burnout, you know, I remember laying on the couch completely just lost and my eye caught the coffee table that I made when I first moved into our new house. And I remembered where I was when I, when I built it. I remembered what it felt like to actually make that thing. And in that moment, it was like, oh, I, I can get through this, even if it was for like a, a brief moment. And so I think those are powerful experiences that we need to uh, reconnect with, right? And, and the, making a desk, making a, a kitchen table, making a painting, whatever it might be, is, is a great vehicle to begin exploring that again. Yeah, no, I love that. And I love that you're bringing that to, to kids because I think that, you know, if we were all able to, a piece of our identity, if we were all able to walk out of high school and into life, you know, again, air quotes, because, you know, yeah. life doesn't start when you're 18, but it sometimes feels like it does. Um, if we can walk out and walk into the world with a sense of capability, with a sense of competency, with the knowledge 
located somewhere inside of us that we are capable of something of building something worthwhile and valuable i think you know there's a double-edged sword of like getting our value out of creating and making and i'm sure you wrestle with that a little bit yeah. when you sell you know because you know you know people pay you to be creative and so there's a value attached to it yeah. um but i think there's from for myself knowing that i am capable of doing certain things helps when i run into that fear of challenging myself or fear of risk taking it's like well, i've done something maybe not this exact thing but i've done something hard before or something demanding um but yeah no so I, I love the fact that you're bringing that to, to our youth yeah and I, I think you know as you when you're young you're still you know you're trying to figure out yourself and, and your place in the world and, and and whatnot but if we can give young people experiences where they can start to get a taste of okay i've got a unique creative expression within me I'm, i've got something unique to offer this world and i'm i'm personally still trying to figure out what that is but if we can set youth on a path to find that unique thing and we can somehow you know guide them away from trying to be like everyone else you know go to school get your degree jump into a job and just do what everyone else is doing um, we don't need many more people like that. <laughs> we need people who come alive um, and and have uh, come in touch with that that unique creative expression within them. That's where, you know, you know what I try to get through to the young the students that I work with is that they have a unique perspective, right? We all do. The people that we're trying to solve the problem for, and us as creative people, we have a unique. Uh, way of viewing the world and that uniqueness is what the world needs and and so how can you work that out you know when when you share an idea you know it's you know we we want the validation from other people but really at the end of the day you have to be okay with it yourself you got to want it you got to be proud of it and so if we can give those kids more of those sort of opportunities i think they'll be better able to to navigate the the real world, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. We're coming up on an hour. And so I really appreciate you carving out some time. Um, what are you most excited about these days? What are you working on and how can people learn more about what you're working on? I'll include links to all sure. your various websites and, yeah. and things as we go. And also maybe some, some next steps for people who maybe this is their first introduction to this idea of design thinking to solve problems for themselves or for clients what where should they go next and what should they read or listen to or or follow up with yeah i mean so yeah i you can f kind of follow my work on uh mostly on instagram at, at clark underscore studio or my website clarkstudio.ca um, make good his make good in the neighborhood.org i gotta shorten that one um or at make good in the hood on instagram and uh, so what am I most excited about? I mean, I, I'm really stoked for this upcoming Make Good project at the school. You know, we're coming at it uh, differently than the first one. We got a lot of new ideas we want to experiment with, and I'm just excited to get in there with the students. Like I'm always, I always walk away going, "Man, kids are cool, <laughs> terrifying, and and challenging." But uh, there's so much potential there that gets me so excited and and gives me purpose for what I'm doing. Um, I think, you know, when I'm at, you know, my office and I'm working on some project, I'm like, you know, I'm getting paid to do it. And it's, but when I get in there with the kids, I'm like, this actually has impact. And that gets me super excited. Um, and I guess for, for people who want to dive into design thinking a bit more, I, I, I would probably recommend uh, looking up IDEO. 
uh, I think IDEO.com or .org, one of the two. Um, and they're just they're kind of like the pioneers of it, and they've got a lot of good language around design thinking. But I, I'd also discourage people from diving too much into literature and just go make something. You know, uh, I always carry a sketchbook around with me, a simple thing like a pad of paper and a pencil, maybe even get yourself a disposable camera and just start walking around noticing things. You know, I think, um, and this is something that we're trying to uh, drive home in this next Make Good project is that the artist or the designer, their superpower is being able to notice. And so uh, in whatever way you can, slowing down and carving out that space to notice what's happening within you, what's happening around you, and trusting the creative process to happen, right? If, if you create the space, uh, the ideas will come, right? And so, you know, it sounds uh, trivial and trite, but just, you know, get your ideas down, uh, make something, and pay attention to the process, right? If you, you know, whatever it might be, if you want to uh, build a kitchen table or you want to make a piece of pottery or something or you want to paint a painting you know maybe start there do something simple like that um, in an organization you know create space where you can play and you can have fun right get a, a whole bin of random materials and and crafts and whatever else and uh, try to solve problems uh, through a creative means um I would just I, I would caution people not to to get too hung up and too attached to what the experts say. It's all in the doing. Just show up and and do the work. And if you got questions, you can talk to me, and I can come in and 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 help you help you out. Awesome. Well, thank you, Josh. It's always a pleasure to sit down with you and chat all things everything. You're a wealth of knowledge and experience. And so I really appreciate you sharing with myself and with, uh, with our listeners. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening in on this week's episode. And as always, I appreciate it when you subscribe and you rate and review the show on iTunes it really does help us reach a wider audience. And if you want to check out www.jeffcoulard, that's J-E-F-F-C-O-U-I-L-L-A-R-D.com. That's where I post a lot of these podcasts as well as videos and blog posts about topics related to the topic of power, because as we know, all roads lead to power. <laughs>